Father Richard McNeely, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here, Rudy. Thank you. It's you know actually like I'm a big fan. I've been listening to really? your podcast, and uh, yeah, uh, this is great. You know, I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I had to make sure that I got a haircut and everything like that because I said Father Richard McNeely. He's a handsome guy. I gotta look good on the camera. I can't. I can't lose any more weight at this point. That I, I've lost weight recently, but. Uh, Father Richard McNeely's good-looking guy. Oh, I'm going to be on the same screen as him. You make, you make me laugh, man. You make me laugh. <laughs> now, you are the vocation director here in the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston. How many years have you been doing this? Uh, it seems like it hasn't been that long, but it's been four years. I'm going to complete four years. Four years? Yeah. And who was the vocation director before you? Father T.J. Doltz. And he was there for how many years? Well, so so this is going to be, I mean, it's going to sound bad. He was there for four years, but uh-huh. I'm not leaving. Like, I just want to let people know that. <laughs> um, usually the term is six, and okay. the, the two before him stayed on seven years. So there's, six is about the average, and we, well, I like to say, I don't know if Father TJ would like this, but he got out for good behavior or whatever. Like, but this is not prison, <laughs> being a vocation Did he meet his quota? Prison. Is that what it was? <laughs> I don't know. Well, to be honest, I, I think it was because, so the parish I came from, he uh-huh. went to as pastor. And he, um, like, he had been there before. Uh-huh. They loved him. And it was just like the right fit. I think everybody knew that. And so when it came open, because the pastor I was with, uh, Father Chester Borsky, he retired. Uh-huh. Uh, Father TJ was like the obvious fit. And so they just, they made it work out. They, and it's he, all about timing too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He left in four good years and he got to be the pastor of his dream parish and things like that. So before him was Father Dad. Yes. So okay. I am following, I just had lunch with him, uh, but I am like in <laughs> his wake. I am following the the, the um, trail that Father Dad blazed in, in the vocation office. Now, speaking of that, that trail, we've got, you know, ordinations coming up every year and we've got another set of ordinations. Now, by the time this interview gets released, I believe it'll be done, but these guys, are they among the guys that you brought in or are they still from Father TJ? Yeah, this is the thing people don't realize about vocation directors is it's a long-term project. Uh-huh. Um, and so, no, these these are actually... Uh, especially the priest, I really think of them as Father TJ's men. Okay. Um, not because, I mean, there's there's something about, especially that group, if you know, and your listeners know, Deacon Christopher Meyer, Deacon Jacob Ramirez, <laughs> uh, Deacon Luis Garcia. Like, a couple of them are really just, like, big sports aficionados, and you could just tell, like, Father TJ, like, had his stamp or his, like, <laughs> personality, something in him imprinted on these two guys or these three guys. Um and so I think they came in under Father TJ, even though the weird thing is, is that because a couple of them kind of had long-term application processes, uh-huh. for lack of a better word, they were also aware of Father Dat. They interacted with him. So okay. I was just telling Father Dat, when I came to the office my first year at the end, we had seven guys ordained. And everybody's congratulating me because they haven't had seven <laughs> ordained maybe ever or if it happened before, it's been a long time. Um, and I did nothing. That was all Father Dad's work. But it showed up when I was vocation director. So, so you took the credit. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's hard for me to do that, but I tried. Uh, and and so, like, um, when I uh, finally move on to whatever God has for me next, whatever the, you know, Cardinal Donato Bishop has for me next, 
uh, some other guy will start to see what I did and wow. hopefully it'll be good. Uh, and they'll be crediting him like, man, you had like 10 guys ordained. That's great. They yeah. called that one batch of the Magnificent Seven, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they were they were good men. That was they Father David men. Michael, Father Ryan's class. Yeah, yeah. Father Rick. Father Rick, yeah. yeah. Now you got to name them all. Oh, Father Jose Alonso, <laughs> Father Justin Cormie, uh, oh, Father Tent, uh, Vincent uh, Tran, and... I think that's it. I don't know because you named a couple. Oh man, if I if I miss anybody, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> now, did you always think it's like you having were a lot of kids? You know, you can't forget <laughs> them. They're gonna remember that. Oh, that yeah. that one guy's like he's. Like, I knew he didn't like me. Yeah, <laughs> he's not my. I'm the least favorite of the king. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now, did you always want to become a priest? Uh, no. So I was not one of those guys um, who thought about priesthood was not on my radar at all until I got to college. Um, I have no idea how it wasn't, but I mean, when I look back, I think, yeah, there were probably things, signs and signals and stuff that was going on in my early life Uh that would indicate that this is what God wanted. But I was oblivious. I was just out to lunch somewhere else. No, no. Yeah. My own planet. Did you grow up in a Catholic household? I did. So my parents uh, and I, well, my dad was Methodist and he didn't uh, come into the Catholic church until I was in, I might've been in seminary. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or just like a few years before, if that. Um, And so, but we, we were one of those families that went to Catholic church every Sunday. My mom was uh, determined to get us to mass. Was she a a cradle Catholic? Um, She... She was, I guess. Yeah. So she was baptized as a little kid. She's Hispanic. Uh-huh. Um, and so I guess it was just part of, you know, the family's faith and culture. Um, and, and so like we, um, we always went to church, but I would not say that our family was like super devout or practicing at uh-huh. the time. You know, I even went to Catholic schools um, in was there a conscious decision of your parents? Like, we're going to raise our kids Catholic? Yeah. Well, I'm an only child. Okay. So conscious decisions to, to make this kid Catholic. Um, and I, I appreciated that. Like, I know my parents sacrificed to put me through Catholic schools. Uh-huh. Um, and I think part of it, you know, it was a little bit like, well, maybe we don't know how to teach this, our child the faith, but we're going to let these people who do have at it. And I think there's something to that. Like maybe you don't want to outsource your child's faith education. Uh-huh. And there's some things that parents just have to do. Um, but I'm really grateful I went to Catholic schools. So I went to St. Vincent de Paul as a little kid for okay. grade school, Strake, you know, for high school. I went to Catholic college. I mean, I just went to Catholic schools like throughout um, my life. Was there any discussion about you being raised Methodist? No, I don't think my dad was very... Um, he wasn't like a devout Methodist. Okay. And knowing my grandparents and the kind of faith home he came from, they, they were sort of Methodist, but with almost like a Unitarian bent. Like they were, I don't think they had a problem with me being raised Catholic. Maybe their only problem was that those Catholics look exclusive, you know, something like that. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, you know, they were just happy I was Christian and being raised in a Christian home. So. Now growing up through you know, the the Catholic schools you went to, you still didn't have any thoughts of becoming a priest, huh? Yeah, neither from parents or family. I mean, no one in my family is a priest. Um, or from the school, 
like somehow that question about vocation just never got brought up. I think that maybe at certain points in high school, people insinuated because I did well on a religion test uh-huh. or because I was involved in the parish in certain ways that like, hey, maybe, you know, And th- but it would stop at that. It was like, hey, maybe, and then there'd be this dramatic pause and we'd move on. So, <laughs> so there was no hard sell. No, no. Nobody pulled you aside and, hey, have you really thought about, because Father Dad does that at St. Faustine all the time. He, yeah. You think he's still he's still the vocation director after That's great. I am so grateful. Father Dad, thank you for doing uh our work in in your parish. So. Um, but none of that for you. No. And uh you know, there was a time in my life, I think probably from middle school on where things just got well they were probably not like pleasant um at certain points in my life and like I was being bullied and life at home was really rough and you know, like parents and their marriage was kind of like tension. And mm-hmm. as an only child, you just pick up all that stuff. There's not a lot of um, other people to absorb some of this this stuff. So I guess like all those things kind of came together. And um, I really started drifting away from God during those years, which is was really a shame. Um, was it your high school years mainly? Uh, middle school and high school. Yeah. Okay. And uh you know, it was only back in college when I really started having to make some life decisions for myself, like mom and dad aren't there to tell you what to do. Uh-huh. Uh, then I think I began to really uh, at least be, begin to decide to t- take the faith seriously and make it my own. Um, but otherwise, uh, yeah, I think that's that's part of the problem is that not only were people not selling <laughs> the vocation idea to me or even discernment. Uh-huh. Um, but then I was also kind of not listening to God during those times. And, um, you know, I just kind of noticed that in some ways it, my life from the outside probably would have looked pretty good, pretty committed, you know, student at a Catholic school. Uh-huh. Um, I am a rule follower. So to a large extent, like my mom's like discipline is still like in my head, you know, I can hear her voice kind of thing. Was she very um, traditional while you, know, you were growing up? I think very she, strict parent. She was strict. And uh, at the time, it was, you know, a cause, <laughs> not a cause for rejoicing. Uh, I was probably upset and rebellious or whatever. But but later on, I realized like, yeah, you know, I'm really glad that uh, to a certain extent that she did what she did. It's what you needed. Yeah, to stay out of trouble. Uh, God knows that. Um, <laughs> was there any point where you really got into trouble where things were pretty dicey? No. I mean, she was always afraid that I was going to like fail out of school. I don't know why that was her fear, but um, my grades were never bad at all. Sometimes she could tell, like I'm a smart student and I'm, uh, I stopped trying. And I think she could just tell like my bad grades or like um, my mediocre grades were just a result of like zeros because I didn't turn in the work uh, kind of thing. <laughs> so, you know, there were moments like that. And I, I think... Um, she probably knew I was just like this angry teenager simmering under the surface. Um, but, you know, on, on the surface, I went to like youth group and things like that. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, th- those two things, maybe just no one really kind of pushing the idea of vocational discernment and then um, my heart being kind of far from God and maybe like family life not being the greatest. They just all kind of, it's a toxic stew that I I wouldn't have found my vocation uh, at that time, even if God had shouted at me. I said earlier, you're a handsome guy. Oh, what thanks. about girls? 
Yeah, so I dated uh, in high school. Uh, you know, I think um, part of it was, I'm sure, like somewhere in the back of my mind, forgive me, uh, high school girlfriends, like I, I was, you know, so much of a typical high school boy, like self-absorbed. Uh-huh. Um, like, I mean, I, I probably tried to listen to my girlfriend and I, I really did try to like uh, be a good boyfriend, uh-huh. but I think somewhere in the back is is just like yeah self self absorption. So I just think about all my actions now. Anyway, so you weren't emotionally mature enough. No, no, <laughs> no. Just um, so I had I had a really a long term girlfriend in high school. Uh, we dated f- like five over five years um, throughout m- much of high school and then all of college. And um, yeah, I just uh, it, I was trying to think like somehow. Um, you know, I, I, try, you try to put your girlfriend first or do things for her, but I mean, she's also a, a high school girl. So uh-huh. th- there's, we're both self-absorbed <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but it, it was, you know, I, I really, I don't know. Sometimes people ask me, cause I, as a vocation director, you listen mm-hmm. to a lot of other people's stories. Like, do you think it's good if people date in high school? And, um, you know, I think, well, it's, it's probably not a one answer fits all kind of situation. Uh-huh. Um, but for me, there was probably some good. Like it definitely helped kick me out of my own little world and like try to love this other person or try to do something. So you know that like I have to bring her flowers, you know, I have to call her on the phone. Uh-huh. And these are not things like guys maybe naturally like. Uh, <laughs> but it was it was like good training to like, okay, Okay, it doesn't matter. I'm not. I'm not the center of attention right now. Let me just. Let me just. You know. Did this. you guys ever talk marriage? Because you yeah. were together for so long. Yeah, especially in college. Yeah, you know that was that was kind of the plan in the future. But it was in college that I also began to have like good friends who were Catholic and who started challenging me to live the faith. And I also began to have, um, yeah, like my own, I guess, prayer life began to wake up. Um, and my own stirrings about like what what am I made for? What is what is going to make me happy? Um, yeah, what is life about? Uh, the meaning of life. I took philosophy classes in college, and um, those, where'd you go? I went to St. Louis University. The acronym is SLU. It's a really I don't. They should change that. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about bad marketing. And what did you take? Uh, I. Wanted to be a radio, television, film guy. Okay. That was that was going to be my major. And, I mean, one, I was trying to get away from home uh, at the time. Uh, so I applied to, like, Florida, New York, Chicago, L.A., you know, just like a periphery of, <laughs> of places. But they also had those places, well, maybe not Florida, but they had decent RTF majors. Um, and nothing really either stood out or I didn't get in. And so I went to SLU, um, and I became like an English major. I was going to be like a creative writing. Um, mm-hmm. And my dad insisted that if he was going to help me at all with college, I was going to do business. Um, okay. Which I'm grateful because it's true that when I graduated, that was mm-hmm. what got me a job, um, not philosophy. So I ended up taking one philosophy course. They asked these deep questions that I was kind of talking about a second ago. Uh-huh. And I fell in love. Like... I loved those questions and thinking about like, yeah, what does make me happy? Because I'm not happy now. (laughs) And I would like to be. 
And I, I just, all these questions that I just, I don't know, I never took the time to ask like, what's the meaning of life? Why do I exist? Um, does God exist? Like these are all just either I'm working from assumptions or I'm just, um, yeah, like ignoring, you know, the, the, even the question. And so once I started to ask them and because I was at a good Catholic school uh, or at least good enough, I found great answers in the tradition of the church, like Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, just like people had been asking those questions for years, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. Is that what led you to the, the, the first thoughts of becoming a priest? Well, it was that actually, it was, it was friends from philosophy class. So I met these like great Catholic guys and uh, one of them, he's a priest now in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, Father Eric Lundgren. He began to ask me in an annoying way, hey, why aren't you a priest? And I was just like, I was so uh, taken aback by that question. Uh-huh. Like there were so many obvious answers. Like one, I'm not in seminary. Uh, I don't want to be a priest. But really I was like, I'm dating somebody. Like uh-huh. the funny thing was, because he would ask that a lot. And I think it was a joke. Maybe that he was trolling me before trolling <laughs> was a thing. Um, I realized that the right answer is because God doesn't want me to be a priest. And then when I realized that's the right answer, I also realized I never asked God. So <clears throat> I was kind of explaining that, you know, I, I had maybe in high school and middle school, I was going through the motions, mm -hmm. but my heart was kind of far from God. And so just kind of recognizing that like, yeah, I've never actually had that conversation. I came up with what I want to do with my life. You came up with God's answer. Yeah. <laughs> I master planned my life. Um, was, he a, was he a priest already at the time or a seminarian? No. When he asked you? These were just guys who were friends from philosophy class. Uh, this guy was discerning. Okay. So there were a lot of the group who were discerning. But they, I mean, they had, you know, there was a group of girls that uh -huh. were kind of invested with us. And um, yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of um, people who probably were dating at the time. Okay. Um, now, how did you go from the point of you wanting, thinking that you were going to be you know, not be a priest, maybe that your vocation was to be a, a husband and father to the point of, okay, let me enter the seminary. So it was definitely a journey. Um, it took me five years, even from the point where I think I thought I should look down this road to get to the seminary. Um, don't take that long, guys. If you're out there, <laughs> just talk to your vocation director, make your life so much easier. Um, it took too long. So you wrestled with it even before approaching anyone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I know, I mean, I know that most guys, like maybe it's a guy thing to be independent and not need help. But like most of us are kind of like, okay, give me the information, tell me the secret formula, and I'll just run the computations and figure uh -huh. out if I'm supposed to be a priest in the privacy of my own room. Um, and that's just not how discernment works. It's it's supposed to be done with other people. Like even marriage, I think I was having this great conversation the other day about arranged marriages uh -huh. and thinking that, you know what, like a hundred years ago, it, dating was so much easier and and it it's not in a bad way. Like 
people who knew you better than you, you knew yourself at 18 called your parents. Uh-huh. You know, they kind of had, if they had what's best in mind for you, they would probably be a great person or group of people. To consult. Yeah, about uh-huh. your future spouse. Like they could probably make some great judgments knowing your genetics and your dispositions, knowing what's out there, you know, as opposed to like <laughs> an 18-year-old trying to find his future. Like it's hard. So why do that by yourself? Like kids, come on. But yeah, there were a couple of times that maybe I should have deferred to my parents <laughs> in my history. Now, did you break up with the girlfriend during college or after yeah, college? Yeah, that's a good question. So I had a conversion of heart uh-huh. um, in my college years where I was really, um, I went to a retreat for the first time on my own with these friends and we went to a Benedictine monastery, which in St. Louis, I don't know, I expected it to be like ancient and, you know, like it was a pretty new monastery. The uh-huh. guys taught high school, but it was a great place to go. And uh, there was a meditation there. I got a YouTube video about this. So I don't want to go too long, but I basically like I was sitting across from Jesus, kind of like we're sitting today. And he was, ha- you know, has his plan, not my master plan, but uh-huh. his plan for my life. And I just knew the girl was not in the box. I don't know, like I was in tears because I was like really distraught because at that point I was trying to live my life for Jesus. I wanted to live Mm -hmm. my life for Jesus. I knew that he was the meaning of my life, that he was who would make me happy. And uh, like the sumum bonum, like everything I wanted was God. And yet here I am telling God, I don't want you. I want this other person. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's not in the box, so I'm gonna go because I don't want your box. <laughs> and I was that was that was really heart wrenching for me, um, and really kind of disappointing for me to to realize like, okay, Jesus set everything up. He asked the question, uh-huh. and I walked away. You didn't like the answer. Yeah, that's not good. I knew that wasn't good, so I wrestled with it, and I actually came back. Um, to Houston. I was out of state, uh-huh. came back for the Trudum, the Good Friday, you know, Holy Saturday, Easter mm-hmm. Sunday. And um, I, we had a new pastor and get this, he was preaching divine mercy. So Father John Wire um, was like the apostle of divine mercy before Father Dat and St. Faustina. And um, he he's like responsible for the chapel down there in St. Lawrence and it's dedicated to divine mercy. And he uh-huh. put a big statue at our church, St. Vincent de Paul, um, and so he was reading from the diary of St. Faustina for the Stations of the Cross. And mm. I'd never heard of this diary. I'd never heard of that saint. And just something about the grace of that day and that diary spoke to me in a way that nothing ever had. And I was, I was like ugly crying in church in front of my parents. And that wow. was like, to me, that was like the most embarrassing thing. <laughs> I would have loved to have melted just because of that. But yet I was so happy. Like I knew God loved me. I, it's almost as if you just said it, Richard, I love you. Uh huh. And clear as day inside, everything like came on, like lights flipped on. And I think I thought to myself, like I've never experienced love like this ever. And I've always wanted it. I just never knew. And it's so good. I'll do whatever, whatever, whatever this is, I'll do whatever it takes. Like, I just want to live my life in that. And, you know, that 
um, really set me off. Like I bought the diary. Uh -huh. I got every single piece of literature I could get my hands on. I stopped studying for my exams. I just read the diary and like wept for my like wasted life. And I mean, it was great. It was so cathartic. Um, I became a different person. Like I was the kind of guy who probably instigated parties back in the day. Okay. They were Catholic parties, but they weren't good parties. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'd be the kind of guy, I just love bringing people together. Uh -huh. um, and so I'd always be like getting my friends. And now I was like the guy who was like, hey, it's three o'clock. We got to go pray. And like, you know, like arms out, like on our knees, getting uh -huh. all my friends to like do penance and stuff like that. And they're like, what happened to Richard? <laughs> Who so is this how did the conversation with a girlfriend go? Yeah. So I talked to her after that wave of grace entered my life. She was actually studying abroad at the time in China. Okay. Uh, she's not Chinese. She was studying abroad in China. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember the conversation. I don't know if what, what she recalls of it, but uh, I remember that like we both kind of agreed like marriage really deep down, never felt like it was in our future or something like that. Um, she had kind of expressed this vision of like helping children in Africa, you know, oh. and I was like, well, I don't really know what I want to do, but I just feel like I'm supposed to do something like St. Faustina. Like uh -huh. I, I just felt like whatever that woman's life was, I wanted it. I'd be a nun. You sign me up. You know? <laughs> like, let me enter that Polish convent and just like, um, that's not for me. Uh, but but so, yeah, that, that initial conversation was good. And she kind of acquiesced, like, okay, maybe maybe this is not our future. Uh -huh. But then she came back to the States, and I was like, forget what I told you. Oh. You know, I was still at war in my heart. Like, I, I think I remember praying at some point, like, God, if you want this relationship to end, you got to make it happen. I'm stuck. Uh -huh. I can't just say goodbye to this person. Like, cause you like, were together for so long. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, like she and I started dating at a very vulnerable, bad place in my life. And so like, she really became like, I mean, it sounds bad, but a God, like she was my life. Uh -huh. Um, we, <laughs> now we talk about these relationships as toxic, codependent, you know, and uh -huh. I, I learned these words later. Um, but I mean, it was, it wasn't, really like healthy, you know, I knew that like, um, we're kind of stuck and we fought, you know, and stuff like that. And I just, I think we both knew like, this is not, we were not really working, like, uh -huh. but no one wanted to say goodbye. Cause it, we had kind of like, that was like a foundation, you know? So you didn't um, know anything else too. Yeah. I mean, this is like the one person who I thought, you know, like I loved and I had received love from, and then I tasted this thing from God and realized like, no, I don't know what love is, but that, that was, you know, whatever came from God, I think that's love. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, we, we eventually just kind of, um, it took a year, <laughs> but it, it fell apart. Uh, I think once God had come in and intervened like that, mm -hmm it was only a matter of time before we were both just honest and knew that we just wanted something else. So. You just couldn't make it work. You couldn't yeah. force it to happen. Yeah. And I tried. I mean, I remember driving up to, she went to a different school at the time, like driving to her college and trying to like, you know, I'm sorry, you know, or try to, to, to express like, well, I really want to commit, you know, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think we just both knew that like something had been driven into the relationship that wasn't coming out. And it was 
light that was revealing, like, this is just not for us. What about her? Did she eventually go to Africa and, and do that stuff? You know, do you know? Um, we kept in touch kind of loosely for a few years afterwards. And then, uh-huh. I mean, it's been years, really. I think I, I did, she's still someone in the Catholic scene, so occasionally I see her like occasionally, like once every five years, like that occasional. So no Facebook stalking? No, <laughs> no, no. We, I think we're both very happy. Uh, she's married and she has uh, two kids, I think, maybe maybe three. I don't know. Uh, and, and that's actually the beautiful thing is that like she too found uh, her eudaimonia, her, her vocation. Um, and she ended up, I think she went to India with the missionaries of charity. Nice. For a few months. Yeah. To really like live it out. And, that's you know, cool. that's, I love this about <clears throat> vocational discernment. Sometimes when you have a little bit of idealism in you and you taste the ideal, then you realize it's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> the missionaries of charity, like if you're thinking about poverty and serving the poor, they definitely stand out as the ideal. But once you try to live it, you realize quickly like this is wow. tough. Tough. Wow. Yeah. Now, when you go to a, your parents, how, how did that conversation go? Telling them that you're discerning the priesthood. Yeah. Um, you know, as an only child, maybe they had some thoughts and dreams, but because I had already put some distance there by going to school out of state and just uh-huh. kind of, um, I don't know, kind of running away from the family dynamics a little bit or um, that when they learned that I was going to come back home and be a diocesan priest. Mm-hmm. I think that made their day a little bit. Oh, because at least you'll be there yeah. in town. Yeah. And my dad was pretty pragmatic. And so I, I had actually like, after college, I'd worked for a year and then I went to grad school for philosophy. And it was there that I kind of fully discerned. I told you it took a long time. Um, and then um, he probably thought like, at least my son's going to have a stable career. <laughs> you know, like he's not going to be living in a basement as a philosopher or something like that. Um, which, you know, in fairness to philosophy professors, you can make it. It's it's okay. Uh-huh. But but it's true. There are a lot of PhDs out there who can't get jobs because it's hard. It's hard. It's have you ever had a conversation with your dad be- while you were discerning about, hey, who's going to carry on the family name since you're the you know, only child, only son? I think we have. Uh, especially because my grandparents uh, a few years ago, you know, they both died. Um, and it was just kind of like this thought that I wonder if they thought about it, the McNeely grandparents. Uh-huh. Um, and he he said he didn't, you know, that wasn't his concern. There is, there's a cousin out there, like a third cousin. Okay. Who's a McNeely, but he's, I don't think he, he's not married yet and he's kind of around my age. So I don't know. Like we don't, you know, I guess it's, um, it's not high on the list. Uh, so, you know, I'm grateful for that because that would be kind of an added pressure. But at that point in my life, when I tasted divine love and realized like, I want to live in this, whatever that means, mm-hmm. um, I was already bought in like, okay, family name ends fine. You know, I'll just keep going. <laughs> so you said you wrestled with it for a few years. What was the tipping point? Yeah. You know, I don't know what exactly I was wrestling with. I mean, maybe some of it was like, well, you know, I met other women after that, uh, you know, after I'm kind of rebounded, healthy and staunchly living my faith. Uh-huh. Um, and I saw the beauty of Catholic marriage and I thought, you know, like this is a person I could spend the rest of my life with. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe part of it was that, like I'm wrestling with like, well, do I really want to dedicate my life to Christ or do I want to get married? 
Um, Did you date seriously or not? Just on and not off? again. Um, you know, I I know I really kind of lived in a kind of neutral. Like I really wanted to be um, open to a celibate vocation if it was there. Okay. I guess I was just reluctant to pull the trigger to say like, yeah, it's it's for me. You know, so I'd kind of like. I don't know, it sounds bad, but I probably lived my life in a way that kept my options open. Like, you know, maybe I just talked to this nice Catholic woman and and we see each other occasionally, but even we're not dating, but, you know. Just, just go out for coffee. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, this could possibly be the one, you know. But, but I think I just kind of knew inside that something was different and wanted really a life radically dedicated to God. Um, and that, that I just couldn't make that go away. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe that was partly that. There were probably other th- thoughts of like, you know, where, that's always a big question for discerners, like, where do I go? You know, like mm-hmm. I looked at Dominicans, I looked at Jesuits, so like, you know, all oh, over. Wow. Um, and I think I needed some healing to look back at Houston because things hadn't been that good here. And I kind of, you know, I didn't know the Catholic Church when I was 18 and left. Okay. I was really kind of in a, a little bubble. Uh-huh. And so it took a little bit of healing to say, you know what, like, let me be open-minded and notice that, wow, a lot of people go to daily mass here, more than I had ever seen in St. Louis, even though I thought, well, St. Louis is like the beautiful church, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, the Rome of the West, as they like to say. <laughs> uh, but really kind of falling back in love with my city and recognizing, like, I am rooted here. I want to be rooted here. Why don't I think about diocesan priest here, mm-hmm. priesthood here? Um, so there, I think there was a lot of stuff that was stewing for five years. It just kind of took a while to settle. And, you know, there's also, I think a lot of guys will say this too, sometimes you feel unworthy. Like, I hadn't lived the best life in oh, high school. You know, yeah. I hadn't. I certainly didn't deserve to be a priest. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who remember me from like middle school and knew me as a jerk. And I like was. Him? Yeah. He became a priest? Yeah. That guy? The guy who, <laughs> when bullied, decided to bully other people, you know? Like, um, so I, I mean, there was a long thought about like, why would I do this? Like, why would God call me to this? And, and just a kind of, reckoning with the fact that, yeah, I don't deserve this. That's the point. It's called love. <laughs> and, and okay, so God can still work with you even if you don't deserve it. In fact, he likes to work with people who don't deserve it. So um, it, all that stuff just took time. It took time for me to kind of acquiesce to losing marriage in a way. And, uh-huh. and in order to receive the gift of celibacy, um, it took me a while to kind of really be humble about like, okay, God, you can actually do this with me. Like I'm not, no one's that broken that can't be used by you. Um, and, and just other little stuff. During this time, what did you do? You were working in the private sector, I suppose. I worked for a year. Um, and I actually, I love that. Um, I worked in like the back office of a financial um, like advisor group. Uh-huh. They, they call themselves like family CFOs. And um, I was the kind of guy who would pray the liturgy of the hours on his lunch break. So it was probably everybody knew like something was up about me, uh-huh. except for me. You know, <laughs> I was I was just happily data entering, you know, doing uh-huh. all this uh, menial work and stuff like that. But I think somewhere deep down, like immediately, I just kind of knew like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. This is pretty empty for me. You uh-huh. know, other people love this, but I don't. And so... Um, I, I remember there was one day like the the 
uh, Archbishop of St. Louis, uh, Cardinal Burke, um, he, he wasn't Cardinal at the time, but he noticed me like always praying in the, in the cathedral, which is kind of my parish. And one day he just invited me to talk and he didn't really, he didn't really say the thing either. He didn't say like, Hey, have you ever thought about being a priest? No hard sell either. Yeah. Huh? Maybe he kind of mentioned it. It was a little bit more than just maybe, you know, he didn't, uh-huh. he didn't just trail off, but he did say like, you know, priesthood is, is a good vocation or so. But I didn't pick up on it. I was kind of like, yeah, that sounds nice. You know, maybe, maybe that's for me. I don't know. Um, but I, <laughs> um, I left that job to go to, uh, work in another financial group and like write a little document about how to be a Catholic and an investor, um, which I really kind of liked because I, mm. in college, did philosophy and finance. And so it's a way to marry the two. And then I went on to grad school for two years to do finance and philosophy. Uh, well, I take that back, to do applied ethics. Um, so like business ethics. Oh. Yeah. So I was in two, school for two years and I worked for a year between college and seminary. So when you finally finish wrestling with these ideas and you decide to go to the seminary, who was the vocation director that you reached out to? So it was actually Father Clint at the time. Um, Father Clint Wrestler, who's down there in Texas City. And, uh, you know, it was funny. I was telling, I tease him now. We know each other pretty well. And, and like, I remember I was trying to call him and then he gave me this like long interview form that I was supposed to fill out before we could talk. Uh-huh. And it had things like, are you male? Are you over 18? I was like, I could have told him this. Sort of <laughs> you know? So I was trying to figure out like, hey, take me seriously. I'm, I'm not a joke. Like I know I'm uh-huh. from out of state, but uh, uh, like I really think God is calling me to come back home. Uh-huh. So he had me do like a little retreat in his parish, which I was really grateful for. And he was the one who kind of told me, you know, like, okay, I understand that you're trying to figure out, is this just a call to holiness that happens in every conversion or is this a call to priesthood? But he said like, don't take those two as so distinct. For men who are called to priesthood, their call to holiness is their call to priesthood. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of gave me the freedom to kind of like punch the ticket and say, you know what? Um, I do feel like I want to be just a saint, but I think there is something more attached to that. And so I started applying down here. And then by the f- time I became a seminarian, my First year as seminarian was Father Dat's first year as vocation director. Oh wow! Yeah, so I, I we we I, I got the best of Father Dat. Um, <laughs> now, do you think you would have applied earlier to the seminary if you had approached somebody earlier rather than trying to wrestle with it yourself? Oh yeah, yeah. I think uh, I was really grateful. Well, you know, having said that, maybe my the time I took was just the time it took for me. You know, part of it, I, I, I had told, there was an old Monsignor at the cathedral who was my spiritual director. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I broke up with uh, the girl I was dating for so long, it really like, I was like <laughs> a puddle of tears. I was a mess. Uh-huh. Uh, even though I knew it was good, I was still of course. an emotional wreck. And, um, and he was like, I was like, yeah, maybe I'm called to be, you know, like, like the St. Faustina, like maybe I'll go to religious life or priesthood. And he kind of put the brakes on it. He's like, well, why don't you just get a job first and heal? You know, like he kind of recognized like now is not the time to make serious lifelong decisions. Uh This this is not a rebound vocation, you know, like, yeah. 
Um, you can't escape into the cloth. Yeah. <laughs> so there was some good to that. And I think, you know, even in grad school, when I moved off from St. Louis, it probably took about a year for me to really own up to like apply to seminary. So, you know, it wasn't bad pacing. I just, I realize now, like there are things, even when I was 12 years old, that if I had been cognizant and one, if I had just kept praying like I was at mm-hmm. the time instead of rebelling against everybody and God, I might have gone down an early route to be a priest. Um, there was something in my life that was unusual that I don't think I recognized. No one around me seemed to recognize. And then it went away because I hid it for, you know, like 10 years or something like that. What was seminary like back in those days? Yeah, I love seminary. Um, maybe that's why I love being vocation director a little bit because like I think I am, like I have tickets to the greatest place on earth. Uh, I have tickets <laughs> and I'm not talking about the pre-seminary basketball game. I have tickets <laughs> to that too. But I, I really like, I give out, I let some guys like, you know, 12, 15 guys a year into the greatest place that I wish everybody could go to. I wish we had a seminary for married people, like people engaged. Oh. But we can't. We don't have that many resources. Uh-huh. And we just, we can only spend it on a few. And so it's like, well, we'll just train the leaders and hopefully they'll be able to be like Father Dad and be awesome parish priests, Father David Michael, you know, like run uh-huh. run parishes in the future. Um, seminary, I did seven years because I had a degree. And once I got there, um, within six months, I knew this is the place I'm called to be. Uh-huh. My life and relationship with God have never been better. Like, I thank you, God, for putting me in seminary because it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I had been, you know, not just trying to discern on my own, uh, which is not a good idea. I had been trying to like figure out the Christian life on my own. I had, I had read a lot of classical texts, which is good, which is uh-huh. good. I did have a spiritual director but I was really like a self-made man in the spiritual life. Like I was, you know, taking on all these penances and praying all these, you know, different things and different novenas and different times of the day, different ways. And I wasn't getting any holier. I was probably making myself worse, to be honest. And just really? Myself, yeah. And it turned out like in seminary, somebody finally <laughs> pulled apart that ball of, I don't know, like <laughs> misfit things or whatever um, or, or yarn and began to slowly like unknot, you know, things and, and make it smooth. And, um, I really, like I traded my beat up Pinto, you know, Ford Pinto for like a Lexus in seminary. Like my spiritual life was like barely making it. <laughs> and, and in, in seminary, um, yeah, it's like, like, what happened to me in my conversion story, like that night and day distinction, like night and day, like God turned on the lights again. And I mean, I just did things that I don't think, you know, a person could easily do in in a life where you're working in the world. Like I went on a 30 day, I went in the Spanish immersion mm-hmm. where I really felt like just parts of me grew up in ways that ne- never did. I went to counseling um, which I know it has a stigma. I always try to tell the seminarians like, hey, you get free counseling. Like, oh, you're never yeah. going to get this again. Uh, think of it like a coach who can, you know, tell you how to uh, frown when you should frown or smile when you should smile. You know, like, like just just an observer who's going to help you work on some habits and behaviors and things like that. Um, I didn't express anger very well. Like at the time, I either 
had so much that I shut down uh-huh. and then just didn't express it at all. Or, you know, we come out passively or things like that. And so like just having like an anger coach, never thought of that before, never would have crossed my mind, never would have paid for it. But in seminary, you know, somebody helped me like express and manage this emotion. And it was like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. So you did a lot of work on yourself as a person. Yeah. The 30-day retreat that I went on, like who could do that, you know? But th- yet like that, like fundamentally changed my relationship with God in in a beautiful way. Um, just great stuff, great stuff. So you didn't discern out and come back. You went straight, the straight seven years. Once you went in, that was it. You knew it. Yeah, I knew within six months that this, like, this is at least the place where God has called me to. Uh-huh. There were, I mean, I'm, there are days, and every seminarian is going to have a day where it's like, I want to quit. This is terrible. <laughs> you know, like, because the cross is mm-hmm. in every vocation. And definitely there's no seminary without, the cross of Jesus Christ. But even then, like, I just knew, like, so without a doubt, like, this is what God wants for me. And this is good for me. Like, it's good that I suffer. Thank you, God. I hate this right now. And I'm not saying nice things, you know, but I will be, you know, come <laughs> resurrection day, you know, probably three days from now, I'll probably be fine and whatever. Uh-huh. So it's just, yeah, it was, it, I just changed so much that I'm just really grateful. During your time in the seminary, while you were discerning, you know, working towards your priesthood, did you have to wrestle with, you know, difficulty of the concept of you never getting married, never having children? I think I had wrestled with that so much prior to entering the seminary. It was not as hard once I got there. Um, Some guys, you know, have the grace to be able to just bring those questions into seminary and Mm -hmm. wrestle with them there. It's probably healthier because you get more you know, support. Um, but I, yeah, pretty early on just kind of recognized like, I mean, it's true that like you do see the grass on the other side. You think like, oh, it's a really nice woman, you know, like, mm-hmm. it, and they have a really nice marriage, you know, like you see the beauty of marriage and, and family and things like that. Um, but I think I had already made some kind of fundamental decision that like I knew what I wanted. I knew what God wanted for me. It wasn't really much of a question. Now, in the seminary, we ask a lot of our, you know, our guests about life in the seminary, what it was like, especially the pranks and the hijinks. Yeah. Did you have a lot of experience with that? Yeah. At some point, I uh, I have to tell you the the prank I pulled on Father David Michael Moses, but that was not in the seminary. Okay. I feel like your your listeners would enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was, uh, especially at the college seminary. So I went to Holy Trinity in Dallas for two years. Okay. I was what they call, what they used to call a pre-theologian, meaning I had college already. Okay. I even had philosophy. I was like a graduate student. I had a master's in philosophy, but mm. I still went there for two years before going to study at St. Mary's, the theology seminary to get some other stuff out of the way. Theology courses mainly, I suppose. I did. I actually took, and I'm grateful for this. I got to take graduate theology with some of the like Cistercian monks there who are like renowned, which is great. Wow. Um, Yeah. Um, But I, so in Holy Trinity Seminary, there were pranks. And, uh, you know, it's funny because now these these guys, I wasn't really involved that much in the pranks. Uh-huh. Um, I probably did enough, like, weird stuff that people were like, we don't know how to even prank him. Like, I, <laughs> I used to try to bake bread, and I would try to, like, make sourdough. So I'd, like, leave water and wheat out, like, 
you know, <laughs> trying to catch ambient yeast and the uh-huh. the place at the time. I think they've cleaned it, but the the vents were so dirty. I don't know what ambient yeast was growing. But it was it was like green and yellow <laughs> oh my and red. Gosh. Um, but but they were like people would throw my stuff out because uh-huh. they're like, why are you leaving rotting? You know, like flour out. You know, it, it looked gross to them. But anyway. Um, I remember there used to be, there was like a little exchange, like there was a, a priest uh, who's now a rector, pastor somewhere that like used to bring a cat, a big inflatable cat, like the kind you'd put out in your yard for Halloween. Okay. And he'd like put it in people's rooms. Um, <laughs> it would just show up randomly. Yeah. People. <laughs> yeah. But then like there was this, I, I wasn't really privy to it, but there was another like guy who's now a priest who was like, he really got into it with the kitchen staff. So back then, we used to have like not like um, uh, a corporate uh, company who came in and did dining, but like there used to be like mom and pop. Like we okay. hire somebody for life to be like our kitchen cook or okay. something. Like that. And so like her and her wait staff, I guess they used to trade uh, pranks. And so somehow they started like moving a fish like a dead fish oh, around no. into people's rooms. Oh, no. You know, like it would just show up randomly and you'd be like, what's that? That smell, yeah. Yeah. And you couldn't find it, so they would hide it. And and like Gosh. maybe it'd be under your bed or whatever, and you know, you'd have to like figure out where it was because otherwise your room would stink. Yeah, for, dead fish. I think it got to the point where like one of the guys decided to like give them flowers, but he blended the dead fish Oh. And he put it in the water. <laughs> so he had like, like fish sauce and flowers. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. So instead of just dead fish, it's blended yeah. dead fish in yeah. a, a flower vase. Yeah. I think at that point they decided to stop because it was starting to get out of hand. Oh. It's like, well, we don't know how to top this, but it's going to be worse and gross. So let's just not go there. <laughs> what about you? Were you a victim or I, a mastermind? You know, I never really, I never really got too involved in the pranks. I'm not really sure why they probably, I don't know. Um, Maybe they thought like we don't want to make Father Richard, <laughs> Richard cry or whatever. So, um, but but so I I really enjoyed um, you know watching other people prank and maybe uh-huh. I picked up on this because so, so I'll just tell you the the David Father yes David please Michael story. Um, I used to be uh, when he was in his pastoral year, his internship year. I was his parish priest, a parochial vicar at St Martha's in Kingwood. And one day, so Father David, if you Michael, Father David Michael. His two first names, sorry. Uh, <laughs> if you knew him, you know that he's he, he can be kind of innocent. Uh, like, and, and I don't think he's naive, but some something about him is just like, he, you know, he's suggestible sometimes. Okay. And so like we wanted to exploit this uh, wonderful trait about Father David Michael. And um, so we told him like, hey, um, there's a person who died and all their family is in Nicaragua and we really need you to do like a, some kind of liturgy, like just say these prayers for the dead uh-huh. over this body and we'll videotape it and send it to the family. And we knew the the guy who had owned the funeral home who we worked with a lot. Uh-huh. So he lent us a coffin <laughs> and we got a couple, uh, a couple of the parish youth uh, with their parents' consent, I actually called their parents first, and they're like, "Make sure that coffin doesn't seal airtight." You know, like <laughs> anyway. So they hid in this coffin. Um, oh and, boy! And we actually have a video. Somebody needs to surface this video, and it needs to go on YouTube. Yes. Um, but we have a video of him as he's praying, 
and the coffin begins to open and he looks at the camera and his <laughs> eyes get really big. Like, are you seeing this? Am I resurrecting this person from the it's dead? Like, like, I don't know what's going through his mind. It's a whole Lazarus experience. Yes, <laughs> he must have incredible thoughts of like, am I seeing a miracle? What is going on? Because they, they did a great job. They opened it so slowly and... Um, I guess they had like a white sheet on, you know, so you couldn't exactly tell who it was immediately. Oh, gosh. And so he, I think for a second, he really thought like this dead person is opening this coffin and we have it on video and I don't know where this is. We need to get it. We need to get it. Like through his, in his mind, he's like, okay, we got to get the Vatican to come and investigate yeah. this thing because this is <laughs> a miracle. <laughs> so scary. you're the mastermind behind that. Yeah. Did he, did he tell that? I think. I can't tell if he, I can't remember if he said it in one of his homilies. I think it was okay. one of his homilies. Okay. Yeah. It was the best prank I've ever pulled on, on somebody. I, I, uh, I loved it because he was the best person to pull it on. Like so was, you were the original pranker of Father David Michael, yeah. not, not the Katie Young adults. I, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that from those Katie Young adults. <laughs> That's right, Katie Young adults. I started this. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they have pulled some pretty no, pretty have. great pranks. I mean, they we have. spoke with the... Danielle and Caroline before about it, and of course, Father David Michael about the stuff that's happened, but you're the original. Yeah. I don't want to get in a prank war with them, so I... Re- <laughs> don't stay away from my car, please. Uh, that was during his his pastoral year. Yeah. What yeah. about your pastoral year? Where did you go? I went to St. Francis de Sales. Uh, I loved it. It was I, just a great parish. Um it's yeah, a lot. Not a lot of people know about that parish for whatever reason. I was born uh, actually down the road in the Sharpstown Hospital there, Memorial Hermann, and so I kind of looked at that parish as like part of home. Even though I was I was baptized at Holy Ghost, which is the other Sharpstown parish, um, but I, I had a great time. I was there with um, yeah, just a, a great set of people. You, what year was that? Do you remember? Gosh, twenty eleven maybe. I think twenty eleven. Or 2012, or, or between those two years. During your time in the seminary, did a, a lot of guys discern out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember I arrived there in Dallas to Holy Trinity, and there was uh-huh. some guy, he was, from, he was a seminarian of Dallas, and um, he, he didn't make it the day. <laughs> he quit. Really? Before. The first day? <laughs> it was so bad. He was a lawyer. Uh-huh. And so it was clear. Somebody said that, yeah, he, we think he still has open cases that he has to kind of go back and forth on. Okay. But he was looking around and looking at us kind of like, what is this group of clowns that I'm, you know, <laughs> like, that I'm part of? Uh, and we were just kind of, you know, we were younger. Uh, uh-huh. He was a little older. He was probably around 40 or whatever. But, man, that guy... We, he like went to go get something from his car and then he never came back. It's like, I'm not spending two years yeah. with these characters here. Yeah. The, did he ever go back? Do you know what happened? No, I know. He just disappeared. I don't know. We asked the vocation director about him, the one uh-huh. from Dallas. And yeah. Maybe oh, he yeah. wanted something a little more serious. Maybe I don't he wanted know. a monastic lifestyle or. I don't know. Sometimes I think. You know, it's true that when you get in the seminary, it's a place of discernment. Uh-huh. Hopefully you've done enough discernment beforehand that it doesn't take you six hours to realize this is not for you. <laughs> but I wow. guess the guy realized like, oh, it's not for I me. wonder what was going through his head. He I would have loved to know. Like, they pray every day? Oh, no. We're not doing- <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I don't know. But there were other guys. We we used to make fun. There was um, some. We we went to college seminary, uh, so we were a little older. Like I was twenty six at the time. Uh huh. And I mean, we were there with eighteen year olds, you know, who like are learning how to wake up on time and stuff like that. And <laughs> yeah, we just we just loved like teasing them. There was one guy who like um, somehow he managed to make the university paper at a dance. Like it's a picture of him embracing this. Uh, young woman, like in a kind of swing moves, who's kind of like okay. bowing her down, or like I, I don't remember what you call that, uh, but but it's sort of like bowing her, giving her a, like yeah. a dip or something. Yeah, dipping. Yeah, it. okay. Thank you. <laughs> Clearly, haven't <laughs> danced in a long time. I can't remember the vocabulary. Um, so he he was doing that in the front page, and I mean, of course, like unmercifully, we're all going to refer to that as his girlfriend and ask him all these questions, like who is she or whatever. Uh-huh. But his buddy was the editor in chief of the paper, so somehow, I I don't know what he had done, but he managed to like alienate himself from his own friends. So they published this, or maybe they were just trying to say like, hey, dude, just be honest. Like, the seminary is not for you. But he used to show up late to everything, get uh-huh. in trouble, and then and then that thing came out. And it was kind of like the writing was on the wall. Uh-huh. He, he left by Christmas. So. Was it hard on you if, you know, like your friends, seeing your friends discern out? Uh, I think it was a little hard. There was one guy who we all loved. And, and there's always like one guy who you think like, that guy should be a priest. Like, I don't know about me, uh-huh. but that guy should be a priest. And then he leaves. Wow. And you're like, well, if he's not called, you know, like, what am I? Like, uh-huh. Um, you start doubting yourself. Yeah, a little, time. a little, or like, you know, like just wondering like why, if that guy was so good, like what, you know, uh-huh. so you never know, like sometimes seminary begins to feel like there's this, um, in the book of judges, these stories about Gideon and Gideon is told to take an army, I think to Jericho and, you know, like take it over. And God ends up like saying some really random stuff, like, okay, you don't need a big army. In fact, your army's too big. And he doesn't have that many. He just, you know, like he goes down to like 300 men, I think. But he says something like, okay, the people who drank out of the stream with their hands as opposed to like lapping it up like a dog or whatever, uh-huh. like kick them out. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> they didn't do anything wrong. Like they're still good, you know? But so yeah, sometimes it feels a little bit like that, like arbitrary. Like why does this guy go? Why uh-huh. does that guy do- doesn't? Yeah, I, The will of God it's sometimes a mystery to me. Wow. Yeah. Like after your pastoral year, everything's just steamrolling towards priesthood, huh? Well, actually, I, I got a concussion. <laughs> All the guys, they'll remember this because they used to make fun of me for it. But um, I, well, I'm not the injury. I think that kind of scared some people. I was, we were playing flag football. Okay. Uh, you know, we play against other seminaries. And so we were practicing for this like meet between us and probably Assumption Seminary in San Antonio. Um and we were running a standard play, first day of practice. I'm not going to be on the team. Like, I don't care to play this game. Okay. I'm not very big, you know. I'm just not that big of a guy. So I'm not going to play football, but I, I'll run. I'm a fast runner. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I was just, like, running drills, helping them, like, practice defense. Um, and so I was the guy who was supposed to, like, go after the quarterback's flags after, like, uh-huh. you know, 5-1,000 or whatever. And I ran in, and I didn't even see this other guy who's also running in. And the quarterback was between us, and he moved in pocket. Oh. And so I just, like that hit in the basketball game, I collided with some big dude, like like Deke, or soon to be Deacon Luke Prohoda, uh-huh. like a big dude. And my head 
hit his shoulder blade or like this part of his body. Okay. And I passed out. Like wow. I, went, I went down and I was having like some kind of seizure on the ground and they thought I was dead. Wow. And then, and then I got up and I was like pretty out of it. Like, uh. And so they took me to a hospital and they said like, oh, this is back in the, just like the early days of like those CTE scandals, yes. you know, yeah. like learning that, oh, maybe concussions are a little more hard on the brain than we thought. Uh-huh. But the the place where I went, like the UR was like, uh, don't play sports for two days and then you're good. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, they stitched me up. Uh-huh. And then like in two days, I was emceeing a mass for the installation of a pastor, which involves a bishop. So it's a big mass. Okay. And I went to a Dynamos game. And like, these are not things that you really want to do when you have a concussion that's serious. Like you want to be like, you know, a little bit like less on the lights yeah. and the sound, like sensory deprivation is yes. good. And so by the end of it, that day, like I was feeling dizzy, I had a headache. Oh, I was wow. like, I couldn't think straight. Like I had brain fog real bad. Wow. And I didn't come out of that kind of state for a couple months. Like it was just like, man, wow. I feel... I feel like I lost. <laughs> so is this the reason stuff. why we have a, a priest versus seminary basketball game and not a football game? <laughs> probably, probably, <laughs> honestly, like it's, uh, I think the uh, word on the street was that some of the higher ups saw the basketball game in its early days uh-huh. and said like, I can't watch this. Like these people are like, going to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> it does get intense. I can't yes. imagine our higher ups watching like, a football game between priests, they would they would probably not like that at all. <laughs> like the insurance and liability lawyers are probably like, yeah. They, For two months, you were in a brain fog. Did that get in the way of your, you know, your studies? Well, it was it was tough. Uh, for a while, I was really considering like, I wonder if I should take a medical leave and just go home. Like, wow. it's it's hard to be in communal living with like eighty other guys. And have sensory deprivation. So uh-huh. I would try to sleep. I slept for like 16 hours a day for almost wow. a month. And it was really hard because I live on a hall. Uh-huh. Like I have a one room, you know, bedroom. Uh-huh. That's it. That's my room. And the door's pretty thin. And so like, we know, guys would come back from class and uh-huh. they'd shout and they'd, you know. Yeah, talk be rowdy and yeah. all that. Yeah. And I'd be trying to sleep. <laughs> wow. So it's just kind of, it was tough because, you know, they couldn't change their behavior that easily. Yeah, of course. And I couldn't change mine. It was just kind of like every day I just dragging. Did you have son. MRI scans done and CT eventually, scan of anything? No, not, not, not so much. I think they did take one of my brain eventually because I would have, I had headaches for six years after that. Oh, wow. Which sounds pretty bad. I guess I got used to it. But they ended up like a lot of my problems... It's going to be like a medical forensic file here. Uh, I think we're caused by some muscle injuries that were like ruining my neck. Um, so I just had like neck injuries, shoulder injuries. I had more injuries than I think I knew. Wow. Because I was only paying attention to my head. Mm-hmm. And so it just took a while for all that stuff to get sorted out and healed. But I'm back. I am normal. Uh, I think my brain works okay. Maybe um, that's why you weren't pranked and. In the seminary, they're yeah, like, yeah, we feel bad felt, for this yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, I feel sad for Richard. Yeah, so that's right. I like that. Where did you spend your diaconate here? Um, I went to St. Pius V. I love that parish. Um, it, it's, it's in Pasadena. Not many people know about it. Um, it's got a lot of history. It's actually a pretty old parish. Uh, that, that neighborhood is actually kind of older than people realize. But... Um, yeah, I, I had to speak a lot of Spanish. 
Um, we used to joke that, I mean, the parish jokes it, of itself, that basically that area of the city is Puro Mexicano, Puro Tamaulipas or Nuevo León, which is two states that are on the border of really Texas, but uh-huh. Mexico and U.S. And um, yeah, it's basically like people only from this one state in Mexico. Mexico has got a lot of states. Okay. Uh, so it's just, it's very, it's like a bubble. You could go there oh, wow. and you feel like you're in Monterrey or some other, you know, part of um, that area. Are you fluent in Spanish? Uh, so I <laughs> I was listening to Deacon uh, Jacob Ramirez's interview and he was very emphatic that he, you know, between like all the little grades of fluency. Uh-huh. Um, I think I am. I, you know, no one ever feels secure and like confident in another language. Uh-huh. You always know, like I make mistakes and that was supposed to be masculine. And I said, la, you know, like, uh-huh. um, but I probably uh, do a pretty good job. I can preach extemporaneously and get understood. So I feel like that's that's success. And one-on-one, I'm pretty much, I think they would probably call me fluent. Did you grow up speaking Spanish since you're... Yeah, no. Uh, so just part of my, probably my rebelliousness started early. Like my mom, uh, I like to refer to her as Texican. Okay. Or Tejana. Tejana, or yeah. Or Chicana or something <laughs> like that. Because, I mean, my, her family, her parents are from Texas. It's possible that her grandparents, one of them wasn't. But like we think that part of the family came here to found the little town of Victoria, the city of Victoria. Uh-huh. So they, they've been here a long time. She did grow up Spanish speaking. Uh-huh. That was her first language. Um, or maybe you're a part of your family's from a part of Texas that was part of Mexico. Yeah. That, yeah, no, for real. It, it, it just changed. That's, that's the know? joke, right? Like we never crossed the border. The border crossed yeah. up. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely part of the family history. Um, but so she did speak Spanish, but she was never educated in it. I think she had to get it later on, like in college or something like that. Okay. Um, because back then, you know, they didn't educate little kids in their native language. They refused. They wanted them all mm. to speak English. And I think they used to beat them. Like really? hit them rulers if they spoke Spanish in school. So she only spoke it at home. She tried to speak it to me. And I think I had a babysitter for a year who was Mexican and spoke. Uh-huh. I don't think she spoke English. So I know I heard it a lot, but I refused to speak back. I was like, no, I, I will not speak back to you in, in, <laughs> in Spanish. So uh, my dad is not a Spanish speaker at all. So I guess it kind of, you know, the household, yeah. we just spoke English. But I regret it because it would have been so easy if I would have learned as a little kid. So. I know. My, my my grandma lived with us when I was growing up and it didn't stick with me either. Uh, it wasn't until Filipino, I mean. Do you speak Tagalog? Yes. Uh-huh. But I only learned it later on because after my dad retired, we moved to the Philippines and, you know, Ooh. you get immersed. That's when you really learn. Oh, but that's probably painful because you're an adult and you really, it's hard oh, to learn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was harder. It was harder. It was yeah. in my later teens that I, yeah. I okay. was in the Philippines. Not as painful. So. Not as, painful. but it was still difficult. I, I, like you, I kind of resisted yeah. for a while until finally I, I picked it up. Yeah, but think, now you can do... You're pretty fluent, huh? Yeah. And now we're those adults who are telling those kids, like, hey, kid, <laughs> learn it while you're young. It's so much easier. <laughs> so much easier. After your diaconate year, so it's one more year, you become yeah. a priest. Do you remember anything about your ordination? Anything specific about the day itself? There are very few details that I really have impressed on my memory. I wish I remembered more, but I imagine just like 
you know, somebody's wedding day, it's just kind of a blur. Uh-huh. Like I remember how I felt when I went to bed that night because I, I was crazy. I did a mass of Thanksgiving that very same day. Wow. And I had a reception after that. And so like I was on my feet from- It was boom, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah, just one, like yeah. 7 a.m. to like 10, which now is actually kind of like normal, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Like that's the life of a breeze. <laughs> but I wasn't ready for that. My feet hurt so much at the end of the day because I never sat down. I yeah, you're yeah. shaking everybody's hands, yeah. taking pictures and all yeah. that. Uh-huh. Uh huh. People asking for first blessings. Yeah. Oh, it never, the lines never went down. I was always like, uh, are they done yet? How many people in line? And people would be like, oh, it's the same, you know? So I, I guess I, I just want to get used to those things uh, too. But I remember, I remember taking a breath before entering the cathedral, like, like, entering the procession, the liturgical procession. So there's a second where the MC makes you kind of wait at the door because uh-huh. they're waiting for the rest of the procession to kind of finish on. They want to space things out, right? Of course. Um, and I remember like getting choked up because as I took that breath, like something, like I recognized the gravity of the moment. Like I have been waiting for this. God has been waiting for this. People, all these people are waiting for this. Uh-huh. And it, it just it just brought everything to like, completion like it was like thank you god yes um so that was that was one moment everybody kind of remembers lying on the floor um i kind of do um for some reason i remember this detail that like i had a cut on my hand i don't know how it got there uh but i noticed that when the cardinal was anointing my hand like blood was in the chrism and it was like Oh, wow. I think he even saw that and he was kind of wondering, where's that coming from? It's like, does this guy have stigmata yeah, or something? No, 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 no. It was just, it was just, it was just a cut. So, but it was kind of funny. For whatever reason, that detail like stands out. Wow. Like, yeah, it was kind of, so, I don't know. It was not a lot of blood. It was, I was not like profusely bleeding. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just yeah, joking. Yeah. Now, your first assignment, where was that? Uh, that was St. Martha's. Okay. And uh, I was there for three years and I loved it. I mean, it was, I love those people. I still do. Uh, just, just a great, great parish, great pastor, great parochial vicars. We, you know, like I think a lot of guys, <clears throat> they worry about their first assignments a lot. And they worry about like what the rectory life is going to be like. And I really, I had it nice. I mean, one, it was a nice rectory. Two, it was just like great people. Uh, we really felt like a family. Did you and, say that was Monsignor Borski? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's a, he was a good mentor. Uh-huh. He really makes time for the other priests in the house. And so we would always, actually, I was the one who probably resisted a little bit because we would eat lunch and dinner together basically every day. And at some point I was like, I, I kind of have some other things to, you know, do. I can't uh-huh. do this every day. But <laughs> but uh, I, I'm i really grateful for his um, championing, like championing, uh you know, fraternal life amongst priests. Like uh-huh. he really made it a priority. Like fostering this brotherhood. Yeah. He, you know, and that's really needs to come from a leader because it's hard to get guys to all make the sacrifice and make time because we all have different and busy schedules. Yes. Very busy schedules as priests. But because he was the pastor, he kind of made it known that like, hey, let's, let's make time for each other. And so we did. It was did great. any of the... Uh, seminarians that were, you know, on their pastoral year or their diaconate year, that um, who who went through St. Martha while you were there? Were, were there any that went through there? Uh, Father David Michael. There's a guy from Fort Worth who probably people won't know, but Nia, uh, Father Nia Wynn, I think is his last name. 
Um, I can't say the NG in Vietnamese, so I hope I did a good job. Uh, <laughs> Close um, enough. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and then um, that was it. But I really, I mean, Father David Michael took a year. Uh, you know, he, he was there the whole year. And it was almost like getting a baby brother. Like I knew about nine months ahead of time. I didn't know it was him, but I knew I was getting, a, we were getting a seminarian. Family was getting a seminarian. Uh-huh. We prepared his room, you know, <laughs> like uh, put out his crib and, you know, we got to decorate and things like that. No, I mean, it wasn't, but it just felt like, yeah, we're expecting another, you know, and uh-huh. it, was, it was pretty cool. So he was the only I think one he of the was pastoral the only one. Gosh, if I'm forgetting somebody, that's bad, right? But no, no, I'm pretty <laughs> sure he was. He was it because the next year, you know, Father Borsky was beginning to taper down and uh-huh. get ready to retire. So I guess he didn't give him another guy. And then after that, that's when you received this your current assignment. Yeah, it was kind of a surprise. I um, I thought for some reason because the other parochial vicar had left. And we knew Father Borsky was leaving, uh-huh. that they weren't going to take all the priests at the same mm. time. You thought you were assured of your spot, yeah. at least for a while, for yeah. some kind of Just stability. One more year, yeah. 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 <laughs> and so when this came out, like I was shocked. I was actually on a retreat, and God in that retreat had kind of been preparing me for something new. I had met, um, I guess there these, it's like a nun and a priest who do like priest healing ministry. They're kind of famous in the charismatic world. I think it was Father Scanlon and Father Sister Bre- Sister Breege McKenna. Um, and they happened to be at this retreat center and they said some kind of prayer with me. And somebody said like, hey, I see you leading men, in like a group of men into the church to oh. the Eucharist. And at the time I was thinking like there's this <clears throat> famous thing and uh, Sacré-Cœur, I can't say that word in French, Sacred Heart in Paris uh-huh. that like they have adoration all the time and they, you know, do like flash mobs on the street and they okay. get all these tourists to go inside and like, hey, take a candle, just go inside. And they like find themselves in adoration. I thought they were, it was like that, but no, like this guy had a vision of like, I'm going to be a vocation director. And so when I got off this retreat, I checked my voicemail and I see I have a call from the Cardinal Secretary and... He's like, hey, Richard, I just want you to call me back. And I just knew, like, there's only two things this could be. Because if it's discipline or any other reassignment, uh-huh. somebody else calls you. Okay. He doesn't call you. So the only thing he could call you about is I'm going to be his next secretary or I'm going to be the vocation director. Oh. And even then I was like, oh, I'm going to be the secretary because there's no way he would make me vocation director. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was just in denial. I, mean, I don't know. Yeah. Like by the and by the time I flew back home, I kind of like accepted the reality that like, I'm going to be the vocation director. So I went into that meeting and sure enough, uh, he asked me, can you do this? Um, so when he asks this? you that, is he pretty much telling you or? Yeah. I think, I mean, I <laughs> can't say no, right? <laughs> I think he's a little open to the feedback that like, if I said like, no, you know, and walked uh-huh. off, like he's not, he's not going to want me doing it either. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. <laughs> I mean, by that point he doesn't know what to do with me, but, <laughs> but no. So yeah, it's, it's pretty much like a, I would like you to do this. After yeah. spending time in a big parish like St. Martha mm. and looking at, okay, I'm going to be a priest without a parish. Did that kind of you know, depress you or kind of make you feel sad that, oh, I'm not going to be able to have these families that I'm going to work with. Yeah. I mean, I knew it was coming, right? Like uh, everybody at St. Faustina, y'all know that you can't keep Father David Michael forever. <laughs> um, so, I think people are, yeah, yeah. They're, they're kind of accepting it. 
But there's there's always a little bit of, you know, you save the hurt till it happens. Yes. And, and, it, and it hurt. Uh, you know, I, I think I remember once talking to a pastor who, one, he told us it never gets easier. Uh, every time you leave a parish, it, oh. it hurts even more. And he just remembered like well into like his third assignment, just grieving one day. He didn't even know why he was crying. And then like finally it's starting to come out. Like just all those people he missed. Oh. Um, so I, you know, unfortunately I don't know that I grieved as well as I wanted to because there was so much going on. Father Borsky was retiring too. Uh-huh. And so yeah. I, I didn't really even get like, I didn't really get to say goodbye in the way that maybe it would have felt appropriate because there was already so much goodbye going on. Mm-hmm. I just became kind of, kind of like a bonus goodbye. <laughs> like you get to say goodbye to Father Borsky and, you know, and, then, uh-huh. and I think people were exhausted with goodbyes and it just, so that was, that was kind of sad. And then as soon as I got into my new job, like there's no book that they give you to figure out how to be a vocation. No guide, no, no nothing. I got eight hours with Father TJ, who's also trying to prepare for like, He's going to be the pastor of this huge parish. <laughs> yeah. And so it was like ships crossing in the night. It was just sad. And so I just felt like overwhelmed. And so I probably just, you know, tried to my best to s- swim and not to sink. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, it hurt. But I guess because I was so busy, I don't know that I fully grasped. Like it only, it took like probably years for me to recognize like, man, it, it really is sad, you know, losing all these people. Because um, you walk with them through their lives. Yeah. And you tell yourself, like, oh, I'll be back, you know, I'll come back from time to time. Uh-huh. But the reality is, no. Like, one, that's not, I guess, respectful of the mission that I have. Like, I, I have to kind of keep focused. I can't mm-hmm. just go back to Kingwood every weekend. Um, and two, you know, like, there are other priests there. Like, Father Jonathan kind of replaced me, Murray, who's now a pastor in Sealy. And I wanted to be fair to him. Like, I don't want to be that guy who, you know, like people are still friends with you so they don't become friends with a new guy. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to step on his toes and make people miss you and and, or something like that. Wow. Now going into the becoming vocation director, did you get any advice from Father Dad as well? I did. I still get advice from Father Dad. No, I'm grateful for all of it. He, um, he really is, uh, he was, he, I tell him this, he posted the greatest numbers of all time. Really? Uh, yeah. 16 is, I think, the biggest entering class we've ever had for seminarians. And uh, 16 is, is his number. So he had, he had a couple years where he had really big numbers, like 14, 16, 13. And it was, every other year was kind of a little less than that, but um, wow. So, you know, I get to learn from the goat, uh, <laughs> father, dad, um, no, he, I, I'm really grateful for his mentoring there. He's got the compu box numbers yeah. to, to, to stand behind. Yeah, wow. He's got stats. Yeah. Yeah. But now when you went into becoming the vocation director, are there any guys coming up soon that will, you, you can say, Hey, these are my guys. You know, um, just back to the, that, that lag, that long-term process. So, um, you won't see them till, uh, till probably I'm gone from the office. Cause really? it, you know, the average tenure of a seminarian is seven years mm-hmm. and the average tenure of vocation director is six. So, um, but I think the first person that people will see that's kind of like, you know, 
on bow. And, and actually, St. Faustina will see on bow because he's going there um, next year in his third year, and then he'll go there, God willing, as a deacon oh, in wow. his fourth year. Yeah, to St. Faustina. That's the plan anyway. I don't know. We, we make plans. We'll see what happens. We'll see, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, on bow would be the first, and then after that you would begin to start seeing um, – men who i mean i guess like john clark um and Haidau and carlos valero these these people were kind of um well high and john were the class that when they entered it was my first year okay but you know i hadn't been there for their application process okay. or any of the part of the discernment so part of you and yeah. part of it yeah that yeah. kind of that uh that that overlap period. Yeah, I have to acknowledge Father TJ did all the work for those guys. So, yeah. Now, looking at your time as the vocation director, and you know, you still got maybe a couple of years left. Have you thought about where they might send you? Yeah, um, I think about it. Uh, I can't say it doesn't cross my mind. Sometimes there are days when I think about the parish, you know, and it's kind of like those. Images of like green fields and beautiful <laughs> sheep and and all that, you know, just kind of like, wow, what a peaceful, you know, like I'm sure it's hard at a parish too, <laughs> but um, I miss the parish and and one day, God willing, I'd, I'd go back. Um, but I don't know. Like I, there are so many unknowns right now that I don't really know what God or, you know, my bishop has in mind for me right now because um, – you you know like uh, we've got a new priestly formation program, and so that's kind of it needs to be implemented. That's kind of big on the horizon. That changes a lot of the way seminary works. Uh-huh. Um, we've you know like uh, there are a lot of pastors who are retiring in the next few years, um, and, and I guess there's just kind of like we're we're wondering like what's next on the horizon. Um, in terms of church leadership, in terms of the church, in terms of uh, this PPF. And, and so I don't really know uh, what is going to be expected of me or what God has planned. Um, it, it's kind of like after COVID, I've just acquiesced that I can't plan that well because I really don't know. Like there are some curveballs out there that I don't see coming. Is there any possibility that after this year's round of ordination that you might actually be replaced? I don't think so. I think I would see that one coming down the pipe because uh-huh. it's like one month away. <laughs> I hope somebody <laughs> would tell me, you know, um, I at least start preparing. But I mean, you know, every year after this, I think it's kind of like year to year. Mm, okay. And I just don't know. So, Who would you think would replace you? Yeah, I've told people, like, you could be my replacement, which is kind of cool because I see everybody who might replace me. Oh. You know, I'm, I've am i been their boss at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I get to train. Who's on that list? Well, I think that, you know, you're looking not at a, a large list. So uh, anybody in that class that just got ordained this last year is going to be two years out of in a parish by the time— you know, maybe my six years come up. So they could be a possibility or, like, mm. you know, those those four father, I mean, I'm including Father Joseph White who went back yes. to Rome, but uh, Father Chad, Father, um, father Wayne, Wayne, and uh-huh. uh, father, father Houston. Houston yeah. um, and then, you know, people have talked about Father David Michael. Yes, I I've mean, heard that that it, rumor, yeah, that chat about if he, him. If he doesn't become a pastor, I guess he's also 
you know, on the possible list. Uh, it, it basically, I think you're looking, I don't know, the Cardinal is going to pick whoever he wants. Uh-huh. Uh, but generally speaking, if you look at the history of the picks, they tend to be not pastors because you don't usually remove a pastor to do some of this stuff. But okay. you could. Um, and it's typically, you know, somebody who's a parochial vicar um, and one of the younger guys. They usually pick younger guys. Uh, so I don't know. Does it I, take a lot more energy? Is that why? I think so. And there's a bit, you know, you're working with youth and young adults. Mm. And so maybe they want somebody who um, relates, I guess, because they're from similar generations or they're from that same culture. Um, I guess I'm a millennial. And so, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> if you're going to find other millennials, you need to. So is that why him. you think Father David Michael's name gets thrown out there a lot? Because he's he's quite young. Yeah. Father Joseph as well. He's the youngest right now. Yeah. Point, right? yeah. Um, and I mean, these are all great priests. Uh-huh. So, it, you know, they can carry this responsibility and things like that. You know, I don't know. It, it's, it's kind of a... I, to a Catholic in Galveston, Houston, it's going to sound like a wide net. But when you think about it, there are only like 10 guys who have been ordained in the last three or four years who could possibly be in this boat. So it's not a big pool. Uh, yeah, and it also has to do with timing and all of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing is you're not going to get a guy who's one year out of the parish mm-hmm. and you're not going to get a guy usually who's just one year in a parish. So you're just, you're looking for a man who's kind of like, ready, you know, like a ripe fruit to be picked and put into this box. And I don't know. Um, we'll find out. Suspense. <laughs> <laughs> well, we thank you so much for, you know, telling your story here on the show. And uh, who knows, maybe the next time we have you, you'll have a parish. Yeah. Oh, that'd be, we'll that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, we'll have to talk about more pranks. I have to come up with something good. <laughs> Make a whole list, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just have to start executing some things right now. Are, so. are you going to become that priest, that parish priest that starts pranking people? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. But I would enjoy I would enjoy a good prank now and then. So. Not on me. Not on me, of course. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you don't want to be like Father David Michael that gets no. pranked every year? No. Who wants to be like that? <laughs> Only I tell you, if Father David Michael, he is... He is unique in his ability to be good about being pranked. So, If anyone wants to, you know, or is thinking about any type of vocation, you know, to, um, you know, any type of religious life, how can they get into contact with you? Yeah, thanks. HoustonVocations.com uh, or follow us on Instagram, Houston Vocations. Um, we have a YouTube channel. We have a Facebook. We're out there. Uh, you could even just Google Houston vocations, or I think if you Google, I want to be a priest in Houston, we should come up. Uh-huh. All of our contact information are on those uh, digital media and that website. And um, yeah, we'd love to get in touch. And then you, you, they'd get in contact directly by you or Joelma. Yeah, that's right. Uh, sometimes other office staff may send an initial email, but if uh-huh. you're looking to talk to me about vocation work, or about your vocation, discernment, any of that stuff, priesthood. Yeah, I'm available. That's my job. One last thing. Any piece of advice to somebody who, like you, was kind of wrestling with the idea back then you were, and is on the cusp of calling or contacting the vocation office, but is not there yet, what advice would you have for them? Surrender to God, and he will do everything for you. Thank you so much, Father Richard. Mel, my pleasure. It's, it's been great to be on your show. Thank you.
We'll see you again soon. I hope so, Rudy.